We are live. Great. Welcome, everyone, to uh, Connected Learning TV. This is the first um, webinar in our May 2016 series titled Building News Literacy, Critical Media Skills, and Political Awareness Today, which was organized by the News Literacy Project. Um, if you're watching this, please take a moment to share it with your networks. Um, I'm Peter Adams. I'm SVP of Educational Programs uh, at the News Literacy Project, uh, and I will be your host today. And today I'm talking with uh, Matea Gold and Abby Phillip. Uh, both national politi political reporters at the Washington Post uh, about how to assess and engage uh, with national campaign coverage uh, in this presidential uh, election. And we will talk specifically about some of the challenges and opportunities posed by the range of election-related news uh, and other information out there, such as rumors. Um, and before we dive into our conversation, though, I want to go over a couple of quick details. Um, to those watching live right now, we welcome your comments and questions through either the Twitter hashtags Connected Learning uh, or uh, to the numeral 2 next prez with a Z um, or the Q&A feature that you should see within the video player um, in the Google Hangout. Um, we'll do our best to address your questions here um, in the Hangout uh, as they uh, arise. Um, this webinar is also being co-streamed at the National Writing Project's educatorinnovator.org site. Um, and is part of a series of programming related to ne Letters to the Next President 2.0, which engages and connects young people uh, ages 13 to 18 as they research, write, and make media to voice their opinions on issues that matter to them um, in the coming election, uh, hence, the, hence the hashtag 2 next prez. So this webinar will be available as a resource uh, on letters to ne uh, letters2president.org, um, where you can find many other resources and opportunities related to the election writing and digital literacies. And with that, um, I'd like to give uh, our featured guests a chance to introduce themselves. Abby, do you want to start us off with a quick uh, self-introduction? Sure. Um, my name is Abby Phillip. I'm a national political reporter. I cover Hillary Clinton and the 2016 presidential election. Um, I started out as a reporter covering politics for Politico. I covered the White House um, in Barack Obama's uh, I guess second and third years before his re-election and, um, and then I uh, moved to ABC News and then I came to the Washington Post. Uh, so I've been covering um, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and a little bit of the Republicans and now that we are getting closer to the general election I'll be covering um, most likely Clinton going forward. Great. Matea? And my name is Matea Gould. I'm also a national political reporter here at The Post. My focus is on money and politics and campaign finance, super PACs, and billionaires. Um, this is my fourth presidential campaign I've covered. I was previously with the LA Times uh, and the Tribune Washington Bureau for 17 years. Great. Um, so before we get started, I do, I do want to talk about your roles at The Post. I thought that um, uh, we could look at a couple of examples of information about uh, the election, and I'm going to try to share my screen here um, and share an example with everyone that we've sort of been discussing, Matea, that you, you shared with me. Let's see here. So a recent piece um, from uh, the Washington Post actually yesterday about um, Trump associating uh, Ted Cruz's father uh, with JFK's assassin, um, Lee Harvey Oswald, and making a claim uh, about that. Um, the interview clip is actually here, and I, I'm, I'm not sure if the audio um, 
uh, will come through here. Um, I guess we could have tried that out. Um, let me give it a let me give it a play, and Matea, you can or Abby, you can tell me if if this comes through for you. You getting audio? No, no we're, we're not here. Okay. Okay. But we, can, we can describe a little bit about the story and Abby. What I thought was so remarkable about this piece was it shows how a rumor gets into the bloodstream of this campaign faster than I think we've ever seen it. Yeah. This was a rumor that began on a blog that Rafael Cruz, the father of Ted Cruz, was somehow connected to the JFK assassination because he was seen or someone looked like him, the first blog said, who looked like him was seen handing out leaflets with Lee uh, Oswald, Harvey Oswald in the days before the assassination. And then fast forward and Trump brings this up on a national news program and has stood by it. And I think normally in presidential campaigns, the candidate is the last person to air unfounded rumors because <laughs> most, most campaigns believe that the risk of that is simply too high. Uh, but this is not a normal campaign, and I think that we've seen so far that a lot of times that when we encounter rumors or um, unfounded accusations, they're coming directly from the candidate himself. Um, and so it gets a lot of airtime, it gets spread much more quickly, and it gets responded to by, uh, in this case, by Ted Cruz's campaign, um, who pretty vociferously denied it. Um, Right. Uh, although, you know, I think by then it was a little too late, right? Yeah. It, was, it was the beginning of Ted Cruz's worst day in politics. Yeah. By the end of the day, he had dropped out of the presidential race. Um, but what was amazing was Trump was confronted with the source of his information being the National Enquirer, which sort of repurposed this blog, and questioned why he was attributing or, or citing the National Enquirer as a credible news source and he stood by the Enquirer as a great news source and said yeah. something this morning I think like no one should knock the Enquirer. So it's sort of unprecedented that you have a, a, now a presidential nominee right. citing a supermarket tabloid. Right, so I have the original blog post up here in the share and the image actually that, that is prompting this whole discussion is here in the center. Uh, and the assertion here is that this this man to Oswald's Oswald's here to his left is Rafael Cruz, uh, Ted Cruz's father. And then Mateo, as you just said, the National Enquirer picked this up. And what Trump, you know, Trump's comments were, uh, I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. What is this, right? Prior to his being shot, and nobody even brings it up. I mean, they don't even talk about it. That was reported, and nobody talks about it. So by just sort of um, omitting the source of the information and saying it was reported, he immediately moves on to sort of stir outrage that no one's talking about this uh, and, and questioning why. Uh, and and uh, obviously on the show, uh, no one sort of uh, asked him where, where this information came from, and they didn't get into that conversation. Um, but it's an important um, conversation to have. Um, and this, you know, in this particular election, um, is not at all unusual. I have we we've got a couple of recent searches here um, for Hillary Clinton and and Donald Trump on Snopes, and the rumors, you know, if you scroll through, if you go to Snopes and just search Hillary Clinton and search Donald Trump, you know, seven um, pages here of of rumors uh, about you know f images that have been photoshopped, uh, about images or old footage that is pulled out of context. Um, lots of rumors about Trump um, 
and doctored uh, videos, um, things that he did or didn't say, uh, often taking, taken out of context or, or fabricated, and a lot of pieces from fake and satirical um, websites. So, Matteo, Abby, have you, how do you engage with these kinds of things? I mean, I'm sure these rumors come across your desk in the course of, of, of reporting on the election. How much of it are you seeing this time around, and, and you know, what do you, what do you, um, what's your process when you, when you confront these kinds of things? Um, well, I, I, I see a lot of it, um, and, and as someone who covers the Democrats, um, much of it surrounds Hillary Clinton, some of it has surrounded Bernie Sanders. Um, there was one particular moment that comes to mind. Um, uh, there was a photo that showed Bernie Sanders or someone who might have been Bernie Sanders uh -huh. sitting uh, in a sit-in demonstration at the University of Chicago um, around the time that he would have been in college there as a student. And the photo was um, being sent around as proof that he um, that he participated in the civil rights movement at the University of Chicago. Um, and, the, and actually, you might be pulling up, oh right, there, yep. there it is. Um, and so there, there are a couple of tricky things with this. One is that Bernie Sanders' supporters um, presented this image as, as proof that he um, sort of had an affinity with the civil rights movement with African Americans in the country. But there was also a dispute about whether that person was even Bernie Sanders to begin with. Um, so when this, I mean, when this image first came up, I mean, I think the first thing that we do as a reporter is we don't distribute images that we can't independently verify. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times people would tweet the image to me um, and say, here, this is proof that this is Bernie Sanders. Um, and, you know, we would have to say, look, we just, don't know, and we had there was a back and forth with the campaign. It turned out that the campaign really didn't know whether it was Bernie Sanders or not. Um, they thought that it might have been him, um, but they could not independently verify it. And so we, as a news organization, on the news side at least, have um, not typically referred to this photo as evidence of anything. I mean, I think there is other evidence that Bernie Sanders was involved in protests um, to desegregate the University of Chicago, but this photo okay. is not necessarily definitive proof because there is a person who um, knew Sanders at that time who basically said, that's not him, that's someone else. And then, Abby, did you get accusations from supporters of either Sanders or Hillary saying, why are you covering this up by not showing the photo? Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, it, that's, those are the accusations on Twitter. People would say, why aren't you reporting right. this? Right. Why aren't you publishing this photo? And you have to just say, look, we can't, if we can't verify it, um, if there's no proof, and if the campaign itself can't verify it, then it's even more difficult um, to prove it. So I have to say, I have never covered a campaign in which the motives and the standards of the professional media have been so suspect in the eyes of our readers and viewers. So there is incredible disdain for, I think, the, the process of the quote-unquote mainstream media. There's a sense that we are, you know, wedded to the establishment and that we are playing favorites with information we share, we don't share, to your example, Abby. And then there's this sort of strange flat equalization that has happened where readers, increasingly those who are active on social media, equate every form of information as having the same amount of credibility. So when I was actually tweeting somewhat incredulously about the fact that the leading 
presidential candidate for the Republicans cited the National Enquirer as a news source, I actually was bombarded with tweets from Trump supporters saying the National Enquirer is more credible than the Washington Post. The Post is garbage, you know, plenty of hate and spewing our way on that. So um, it's to me, it's 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 a sort of <laughs> it's a staggering illustration of the challenge we face as journalists to try to cut through all of this noise and actually show that we have a vetted process to get information and why that matters. And there's. I mean, there's a little bit of a caveat in that these days a lot of information is being distributed on sort of user-generated platforms like Reddit. Um, for progressives, the Daily Cost is a really big platform where people share information. Um, Red State on the Republican side is very similar. Um, and those platforms aren't always wrong, but they require verification. So even if information originates there, um, it's our job to sort of like figure out whether there's any real supporting information to to seek comment and to seek um, verification from the people who might know. In a lot of cases, it's the campaigns or the the candidates themselves, um, or you know the institutions that they might have been associated with. Um, so it's not that we totally discount everything that we don't report ourselves, but when we do encounter them, we just have to, you know, I mean, that Bernie Sanders photo was going around on Reddit for months, and <laughs> it doesn't necessarily right. make it true, so. Um, right. Um, I, so I think there are two, two quick news literacy learning um, points we can make. And, and Matea, actually, you have a, a, a lesson featured on our new uh, uh, resource, the Checkology eLearning platform, about viral rumors, which um, teachers listening uh, or students can check out uh, at uh, checkology.org. Um, people are, are um, you know, rumors are designed to motivate people or, or, or to have some kind of emotional reaction that sometimes overrides um, rational thinking and, and sort of lets their own... Uh, leanings um, influence how they view the information. So if there's a rumor that really resonates and they, they kind of hope is true, they're, they're leaning into it, um, they might be more apt to share it with less critical judgment um, than a piece of information that they really hope is not true, in which case they might um, scrutinize it. So I think one, one answer to that is to be aware of that and to, when you confront a piece of information, um, be aware of your, the emotional reaction you're having and try to surface that um, and to sort of break out of that confirmation bias trap uh, where you scrutinize things you hope aren't true and you don't scrutinize things you, you and maybe quickly share things you hope are true. The other quick piece of news literacy learning is that a lot of these um, rumors are, or an increasing number of them are originating on fake news or satirical news sites which are basically I think clickbait um, engines, right? So they generate completely false but outrageous headlines that are intended to grab you and make you click. Um, and just by clicking and landing on the page, you're driving up ad revenue for the site, uh, and they're using that. Um, and then those get shared, and people see headlines and sort of forget where they saw them, and they they enter into the popular consciousness in a in a in a really pervasive way. So that's something I think students can take away here from from that. Um, so I want to come back to, oh, go ahead if you. Peter, I was just going to jump sure. in. One of the things that strikes me with this situation with the rumor that Trump was perpetuating about Cruz's father is, I mean, embedded in this whole cycle of media that led to that rumor entering the media bloodstream 
was this perfect case study of how you can actually teach students how to avoid spreading rumors because one of the things I've talked to students about when you go into a classroom is to try to follow the practice a journalist does, which is to try to pull the string and go all the way back to the original source of information and figure out whether that original source is credible. And if you pull the string on the story and you go back to that original blog post, you see the blog posts, the sources they cite aren't even sources, they just use the word reportedly over and over again. So I mean that should be a warning flag for any, you know, high school student, much less a presidential candidate, who's looking to cite this as a credible story. Yeah, absolutely. To drill drill down to the sources uh, and and look at at the original source. And often you get into this sort of web of blog citing blog citing blog citing blog, and that string can get very long and very tricky uh, to trace. Okay, so I want to um, come back to each of your roles. So you're both national political reporters of the Washington Post, but you do um, significantly different um, kinds of campaign coverage. So Matea, you cover money and influence. Um, and Abby, you cover um, the campaign trail in large part in one particular campaign um, because it's hard to travel with more than one candidate at one time, obviously. So um, I wondered, Abby, if you have encountered people who don't really understand that you're assigned to the Clinton campaign and say, hey, you're only covering Clinton. Why do you only cover Clinton? Because if you pull your name up and, you know, if you search Abby Phillip in the Washington Post, it's all about Clinton, do you get that from, from readers ever? Do, do people pretty much understand that that's your role that you're playing in a larger team of political reporters? <laughs> it's a little bit of both. I think okay. there are a lot of people who do not understand that the world does not revolve around their candidate, mm -hmm. their preferred candidate. So, um, so I think there's a lot of accusation of bias. Um, if they're really fixated on you and they look at all the stories that you've written and they're like, you only write positive things <laughs> about Hillary Clinton or you only write about her, you never write about Bernie Sanders, um, which is actually really could not be farther from the truth for like the news organization. We have another reporter who covers him um, we, and we write a lot about Bernie Sanders. So, um, so yeah, I think people don't really understand that. I mean, I also encounter people don't understand the difference between um, news reporting and opinion, um, and that's a really important distinction online, in particular, because I think, um, you know, as a as a news reporter, I cover um, I cover things without telling my opinion, and I'm not. I mean, I try not to take sides. I try to look at things. Um, from a, a relatively fair perspective, but sometimes I'm just reporting what's happening. Um, and when I'm reporting what's happening, it doesn't always have another side because maybe the other side hasn't happened yet. Um, so, so there's that, and then there's a lot of other things that, that are written on the Washington Post website that are opinions and they uh, express um, a person's point of view, and a lot of readers just don't, may not like that and may associate those two things with each other and marry them together. So I get a lot of those that sure. fusion uh, from all kinds of people, both in person and online, on Twitter, on Facebook, and so on. So. And with, with so much being shared, individual pieces being shared uh, on social, you get a stream of hard news and opinion pieces in your feed in a way that in the print edition you don't, right? In the print edition, opinion is in one section, and so you know kind of where you are, what information zone you're in, as opposed to, to online. 
Yeah, and I've been very surprised. I, I've, this is actually something that has really surprised me, how little um, people are just not aware that there is a difference. Mm -hmm. And um, because a lot of news sites have become opinion opinionated sites. Um, and so there is at the Washington Post and at other newspapers like the Post a difference and a lot of people are not familiar with it but it's incredibly important because uh, you know you can get upset about things that are just someone else someone else's opinion that are not necessarily sure. fact um, and that's a huge problem. <laughs> right. So what is one challenge of your of your particular um, role in, in following a campaign and reporting on a campaign? Um, if you had to talk about it a challenge in that role um, as a journalist, um, what would it be? Well, I think that it's as a reporter these days, we are constantly, you know, we're out with the candidate and throughout the day we're filing stories. So it's not like I get home, you know, at the end of the day I go back to my hotel room and I sit down and I think about it <laughs> and I just write a, a story that I really, you know, I mean, maybe occasionally there's a longer story that I'm working on. Sure. But by and large, as things are happening, we are writing it in the moment and we're publishing it. And so the challenge is that we don't have a lot of opportunity to gather a ton of context. Um, sometimes, I mean, the benefit of being with one candidate all the time is that it's easy to grab context in the back of my brain because I've been following this person for so long and I know what they say all the time and I know the history but sometimes there isn't the ability to kind of fact check or, or grab a bunch of background um, that you need to sort of tell a fuller picture of what's going on and what that means is that sometimes you have to go back to it and you have to write another story or you update the original story um, but sometimes you know I mean this maybe this is a really good case in point. If, Do if Donald Trump had said that at a press conference, every reporter in the room would have reported this, that this thing happened and not, they would not have necessarily been I think um, we have a little bit of a connection problem here at the Post so far. Abby was was um, talking about the challenges of reporting in real time on a campaign from the campaign trail. Of course, she's probably tweeting throughout the day uh, about the Clinton campaign following the Clinton campaign as her assigned role. And as she pointed out, she has colleagues covering the other campaigns uh, as well so that the Post has uh, a balance. Um, and uh, so often she has to file a short story and then come back later and add more context um, as it is available or as she's able to. Um, and so I think, I think one big news literacy takeaway there is that you have to follow coverage on an issue or on a candidate over time. So you can't judge coverage just based on uh, one, um, just based on one story. Um, and I think we're going to get the folks at the Washington Post back here. They just dropped off, and they're going to come right back. Uh, we'll see what happened with their um, with their connection. So uh, uh, I think that the, what Abby was getting at really highlights um, uh, an important news literacy lesson um, in that um, uh, it's important for consumers to to take a look at coverage 
and follow it uh, over time to get the whole picture and to get the whole story and not to judge the coverage of a news organization based on uh, a single story. Um, I think another challenge um, for Abby, and I'll ask her about it if she gets back, um, is this question of, oh, here we go. Wonderful. Hi, so, sorry about that. Hi. That's okay. I was just I was just talking to everybody. Um, so I was uh, sort of saying um, that a big news literacy takeaway, in my view, from from what you were talking about, is the need to follow a series of stories or stories about an issue or a candidate over time, so that not to look at one short piece by you on one day about Clinton and say this is the way that Clinton's being covered by the Post. Um, I think people have this problem with positive and negative coverage as well. Um, you know, they see a positive story or hear a positive story uh, or see one on television from one particular news outlet about a candidate and they make a snap judgment about all coverage from that outlet on that candidate. Um, and it's important, you know, to get a full picture of, of, of coverage and also to, as you mentioned, you might come back later and file a, a second story with more context as it becomes available. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, and I think one of the issues is that um, we can't always remind readers of our past coverage because we're moving so fast. Right. I mean, we try as much as right. possible to embed in those stories and those references. But I mean, this campaign in particular has been so compressed um, that I have trouble sometimes remembering, you know, this storyline actually started three months ago. This is actually a key piece of information we need to give people. It's everything is, I mean, happening in, in kind of greater intensity and saturation than we've seen in the, in the past. Right. Um, so, Matea, following um, campaign finance and the influence of money obviously has, has changed a lot in, in the last five or so years and there are super PACs and there are donors and there are, you know, details about the amounts that each campaign has raised and what they're spending it on and how they're, how they're doing that. Um, what's the biggest challenge in, in your role? I think one of the things that is sort of the, the problem that I wrestle with on a daily basis, I guess it's twofold. One is that it's an incredibly arcane and technical part of politics, understanding campaign finance law, yet it's incredibly essential to understanding the mechanics of why things are working the way they are. So translating it into real English in a way that actually um, readers want to read about, not just that they can comprehend if they, if they choose to, that's one challenge. Um, the other challenge is that there's probably nothing more opaque about what's going on in the campaign than the fundraising because it's all done behind closed doors and um, there's often very little transparency from the candidates or the groups that are doing the fundraising about how it's working, who's participating, um, who's getting access to the candidates. And so I, my job is to sort of constantly try to push my way in places where I'm not always welcome um, and hope that they'll let me back in the next time I try to do it as well. And um, so it, it, it presents its own, you know, obstacles as a reporter, but I do think it's it's rewarding because once we're able to give our readers a window into that part of the process, I feel like they have a greater depth of understanding of what's actually occurring in the system and why can it's reacting the way they are to things. Right. Um, Abby, I wanted to ask you about a possible other other challenge before we move on, because I think it's going to come up in a bit. Um, uh, it, when you're covering a candidate, and, and it's sort of your job to cover Hillary and 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 to cover her events and the things she says and the positions she's taking, um, but you have to, as a journalist, I guess, balance that against just just magnifying her 
her campaign messages, right? So obviously you're in touch with the campaign. They're giving you information. They're giving you in her positions, which is important to get out to the public. But how do you um, avoid just being uh, just publicizing Hillary's um, campaign platform? I mean, what's how do you make it um, uh, reporting? Like, what role do you, do you play to to sort of flesh that out for the public? That's a really good question, and I think it's also just um, there's no easy answer. It's just really hard. Uh, as a campaign reporter, I um, approach this as um, I'm observing a candidate and a campaign, um, and everything that they do, presumptively, is about strategy. And when it's not about strategy, we want to let people know that. So I think that um, what I try to do is um, let people know what's being said, but also tell them why. Tell them why they're going down this path. What's the point? What voters is she trying to reach? Um, what problems does she potentially have? What problems does the campaign um, foresee in a particular state leading up to a primary or on a on a particular issue and um, that's kind of the, the those that's sort of the connective tissue of everything that's happening is that um, you know I mean I think every candidate's a little different in this respect because not every candidate is operating with a uh, with a grand plan in mind sure. and that's its own story right. um, when you know when a candidate is not doing things that are in their best interest or doing things that seem off the cuff or impromptu or ill-advised, um, those are really interesting stories because then we let people know, you know, hey, this doesn't really work, you know, this doesn't really fit with, you know, what the campaign says their plan is. Right. But when it is their plan, you know, we say, you know, going into, let's say, Indiana, which was this past Tuesday, um, her message was all about trade and all about um, the economy and and talking about it in a particular way. So whenever we wrote about that message, it was about the fact that the reason she's talking about it is because she they were really worried that she was going to lose Indiana because she's had a really hard time reaching voters with her trade message. So that's really the the core of what we do when we talk about a candidate's message. And we don't always write every day about what she's saying every single day. I try to write about it when we have something to say about it, when we're trying to make a point about what the strategy is or what her challenges are as a candidate. Got it. Um, so I want to um, switch gears to to uh, talk about a little bit about news judgment and, and you know how do you decide to write the reports you do and address the topics you do. and. I guess for you, Abby, some of that is is following the campaign and reporting on events and and news statements and and things like that from the campaign. But I know there are other stories that that you get an idea to do or you get a um, a tip. And Matea, obviously, the same for you. How do you how do you go about sort of choosing what what to write about, which issues to to take on, and and of all the available stories to you, how do you decide which ones to actually report on? Well, I think if I, I'm lucky that I've been covering money and politics for five years now, and I think that once you've been on a beat for a while, it develops it's sort of its own rhythm and organic narrative that you sort of intuitively see the next story coming. So I, I find that I just come up with a lot of story ideas just by talking to people and sources and asking what people are concerned about and what's preoccupied 
China, but also what they expect to happen. And there are moments in this campaign that's sort of a timeline that gives you natural turning points to write about. And so, for example, today we are writing about Donald Trump's pivot to the general election and how he would begin to fundraise for the first time after claiming he was going to self-fund his campaign. So that's obviously mm -hmm. a natural story. But then, I mean, once you also are in the weeds in a topic like campaign finance, you start to see themes emerge. And one thing that I saw emerge really early in this cycle was this incredible boldness that candidates or would-be candidates were having with the groups, super PACs that were being set up to support them. Whereas in the past, there was a lot of wariness about too much interaction between candidates and super PACs that are technically not supposed to coordinate. Um, I think the candidates and political operatives realized that you know what, the, there's really very little enforcement in this area of the law. And so back in January, February, March 2015, I started seeing groups getting set up by friends of the candidates and allies, and it became very clear that this was going to be a dominant theme, that for the first time ever in a presidential campaign, every single, nearly every single candidate was going to have a super PAC, and it was going to be run by a close friend or ally. And so those are the kinds of things I think if you've just been following a beat long enough, luckily you're able to sort of recognize when there's a, a shift or a change that really is remarkable. Um, and then, I don't know, my, I, I, you just have to talk to as many smart people as you can, right? I mean, right. that's the best yeah. thing, I think, as a reporter, right? Have as many right. good sources as you can. Right. Yeah, and I think that I, I would sort of, I mean, my answer is very similar to Matea's, which is that the only way, I mean, besides when you're on the campaign trail, you're sometimes you just have to cover what's physically in front of you. Right. Um, but the other way is just to talk to people. I mean, talk to people in the campaign, outside of the campaign. Um, and even when you're covering things in front of you, you're still talking to people about what does this mean, or you know, why was this said, or um, why is she going here? Why, you know, why is she traveling to this part of the state or this part of the country? And um, and that's how we, we talk to people about what they what they expect to happen in the future. Um, we also talk to them about, uh, particularly in this campaign, there's been a lot. This is Hillary Clinton's second run, so there's been a lot of retrospectives mm -hmm. about, you know, lessons learned from 2008 about right. how they are taking what happened to her in that last campaign and changing her behavior in this campaign. How has she changed as a candidate? How have her um, her her supporters and her campaign apparatus changed around her. So there's a there are a few genres of stories that come out of the campaign trail, but I think almost all of them are grounded in talking to people about their worries and their anticipations and um, their plans. Um, and that's how we that's how we figure it out. Great. And how much is social media? I mean, how do you use social? Um uh, in sourcing stories or or in your reporting, I mean, how how much of a of a of a tool is that for you? So I do get story ideas from Twitter. Um, I I from seeing kind of what's being chatted about in the world of campaign finance. Among I follow a bunch of lawyers on Twitter and who have tweet about very wonky uh, legal <laughs> issues that connect with the campaign. Um, I do find also that you know occasionally some um, just readers will tweet or post something on Facebook that's just provocative that makes me ask a question that I hadn't asked before. Um, you know, I, unfortunately, uh, the large majority of the interactions I have on Twitter though are, is, are with people who are just 
angry and who are just critical of the coverage and um, not necessarily directed at me, but just directed at the establishment media. So I try to treat treat social media as sort of this wave that I dive into several times a day, but I try not to let it inundate me because it's incredibly, it can be incredibly toxic, I feel like, if you linger there too long. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's really true. I think a lot of times when people interact with me on Twitter, it's not useful, but I do, um, I've sourced a lot of stories from looking at what people are actually talking about. Um, because, you know, campaigns and their candidates are responsive to the mood, both among um, sort of rank and file voters, but also among thought leaders and influential types who um, communicate with each other on social media. And we, through Twitter, we can see those conversations happening. And there have definitely been times when people have been talking about something that Hillary Clinton said or did. And um, that has become the story. The reaction to something that she said or did wasn't what the campaign intended, um, and it kind of backfired on them. And so those those moments are stories. Um, we can also divine the campaign strategy by what staffers are tweeting about. Mm-hmm. So if we all of a sudden see, um, you know, six former Obama campaign or former Obama administration officials who support Hillary Clinton all tweeting the same thing. That's a pretty good sign that there's a concerted effort to put out a message um, from Obama allies that this is what right. the Clinton, you know, this is what Clinton world wants. And those those are stories too. And it's really important to kind of like pay attention to who those people are, follow them, and and monitor the sort of prevailing. Uh, sentiment among these people, or if there is no prevailing sentiment, is there a disagreement? Um, you know, are people just on completely different sides of this? And I think that can be stories. Those can be stories too. And hasn't there been some great moments on Twitter that are stories about the campaign's inability to use social media? That some hashtag trends yes. they tried to start that backfired on them. Yeah, this has happened so many times. I mean, uh, there have been. There have been hashtags. I'm forgetting exactly which one Isn't it was. Isn't there a grandmother um, one? The, um, yeah, they were trying Hillary to... is not my abuela. Um, right. they, they sort of put out this ad for... Um, they put out an ad that was aimed at the Spanish, Spanish language audience, and it did not go over well. And uh, people were tweeting uh, sort of jokes with Hillary is not my abuela, basically saying, um, you know, you can't sort of just take on this culture and use it as your own. Um, And there have been times when uh, the campaign thought they were using a hashtag that was supportive of her, and it was taken over by people who are not supportive of her um, because the hashtag was probably a little bit too generic. Um, You know, there have been other hashtags that have been generated by by protest forces, like uh, which Hillary Mm. is still a very popular hashtag that raises questions about her changing positions. So these conversations are ongoing. Great. So we have a, um, we have a couple of questions from viewers. One came from Twitter um, asking, uh, what advice do you have uh, for teens in particular, for youth in particular, to sort out what's true and not um, in this election? And obviously, you know, we talked about the fact that this election um, has had a lot of assertions, has had a lot of uh, sort of unusual kinds of misinformation and an enormous volume of it. Um, what would be your tips if you could, I know it's a big question, but if you had a couple of tips you could offer um, 
to, to this questioner. You know, I would just remind students to think about your own emotional reactions and biases when you confront a piece of information and, and be rational and be thorough. Um, but Matea, Abby, do you have a, a, an idea for them? Sure. I mean, I think one piece of advice I'd give young readers is the same one I'd give all readers, which is just to try to consume information from a multitude of sources. I mean, one of the things that concerns me in our trends of media consumption is that people are increasingly siloed and they're just reading what their friends yeah. are posting on their Facebook page. And lots of young people have actually told me this, sort of self-aware, that they realize they're just getting information that their friends are sharing with them. They're not necessarily seeking out new pieces of information from sources that might challenge their their thinking. So, right. you know, try to be Catholic with a small c about what you're consuming and where you're going for information. Yeah, and a couple of just really simple things that I recognize add an extra step to consuming news, but I think it's really important uh, to not like embarrass yourself <laughs> largely on the internet. Um, and one of one of those is just uh, take the subject, put it in Google. <laughs> and um, and generally speaking, if you if uh, you will find corroborating information if it's something that's real. Um, if it's something that is not real, or maybe there isn't enough information about it, you will find very little. And so that's a that's a big you know even when I uh, consume gossip news, uh, I'll just Google it and I'll see who's been writing about it. And if I don't see much, then I'm I'm pretty certain that I don't want to right. go too close to it. And the other thing is um, a kind of a simple thing, but I think it comes up a lot is just look at the t the date. Mm and the time that something was published. So right. um, a lot of times, and recently this has happened a lot in the last year, people are resharing news that is not new, Current. that right. is old um, or outdated or um, maybe even inaccurate. And one simple way to avoid that is even if you click on something, look at when it was published. Because if you're sharing something that's right. 20 years old, it's probably not what you think it is. Um, and right. I, that's a huge problem, especially on Facebook, where they don't—they don't actually. When you glance at a story on Facebook, they're not going to tell you when it was published. You have to click through to find that information. Right. And obviously, if you Google something and only see blogs like the one we reviewed at the top uh, that are thinly sourced and and making claims that every you know this is true, but no one else is covering it, uh, that's language to watch out for as well, right? Um, uh, so we have another another question that's that's related to kind of to our next topic. So I wonder if we could maybe talk a little bit about this next topic and then take the next question um, from the Q and A in the uh, in the Hangout um, app. So um, we talked a little bit about Donald Trump. Abby, you said his campaign was a little bit unorthodox and unusual. He has made a number of really bold statements. He's an outspoken candidate. Um, and he has advocated, you know, building a wall on the southern border of the U.S. Um, he has um, uh, recommended killing the families of terrorists as a way to dissuade them from uh, dissuade others from from future acts of terrorism. He has advocated suspending access to visas for for all Muslims. Um, and these statements themselves are newsworthy, right? I think the the press would be would be failing the public if they didn't report them. However. Um, if you if he's able to create news every time he makes a bold statement and he makes bold statements in order to create news, some argue, um, then that has the effect of of, of giving him really broad um, coverage. So there are people who who uh, have criticized the media's role in really giving Trump a platform 
And I wondered if, if you both had thoughts on this sort of catch-22 that the press is in. On the one hand, they have to be watchdogs and gatekeepers and let the public know what candidates are saying. On the other, when one candidate is saying a lot of bold things, they're going to get a lot of coverage. How do you sort of see this? Uh, well, um, you know, I think that we have to... I think that when, when this campaign first started, I think we didn't realize it was going to be quite like this, where um, we would repeatedly be faced with information that isn't just maybe not true, but just completely untrue. Um, I think that the turning point for the media and for myself personally was um, the moment that Trump suggested that uh, he had seen uh, Muslim people yeah. dancing in the streets of New Jersey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that was a really important moment in the campaign because I think that it forced everyone in the media to become much more unequivocal about what is not true. And I think that a lot of times as political reporters we give candidates a lot of leeway um, to say things, to have those things be fact-checked. We give them a lot of times, I think, the benefit of the doubt. Um, but but that was a moment where that was a very clearly untrue statement, and it took a long time, probably longer than um, ne necessary, for people in the media to just say that and to call false. Uh, and to just call it false. Right. And um, so I mean I think that that's this is new. We we are mm -hmm. in a kind of new place here where we have to kind of be much more clear about truth and falsehood, um, to be diligent about fact-checking, to go back to original sources, to confront candidates about things that are untrue, and to, in, to um, insist that they reckon with the facts. And um, I think we're just getting to that point as journalists. I think this, is, this campaign has really changed that um, mm -hmm. in a way that I just really don't recall us having yeah. facing this kind of thing in the past. Not Just not not quite at this level. And what, one thing, I, one thing that I think is important to note in this conversation, which I think is a really important one to have, um, I agree that the media has been irresponsible at times in the way that they've covered Trump. But I think it's also important to note that there's no sort of um, hierarchical, top-down orders coming in media institutions about how to cover candidates. These are really broad, sprawling news organizations full of personalities, often most of whom operate independently. And so I think whereas I think there needs to be some very tough um, internal scrutiny by news executives about the messages they're sending their staff about mm. how they should be covering candidates like Trump who do so often state things that are false as true and perpetuate rumors. I think it's also important for us to try to convey to readers that, you know, we as an individual reporter, as an individual journalist, this is our a philosophical approach to it. And so I think parts of, for the Post, for example, we've done just a superb job um, holding him accountable and holding all the candidates accountable for misstatements. And our mm -hmm. fact chapter blog is, I think, an exemplar of how to do that kind of um, accountability reporting. Um, and I do think that, that across the media, including the Post, there have been attempts to ride on his wave of 
of popularity and get clicks and views. So, right. you know, it's one, it's a hard conversation to have as sort of an individual journalist when you're trying to sort of muddle through this mess and make the best decisions in your coverage. But I right. I do agree as an as a as an industry that that media organizations need to start talking about it a little bit more. Right, and that actually uh, answered the question very well. The question was actually how does uh, this this campaign and this election uh, how how has it affected the way you you view your work when it comes to fueling a particular campaign? So I think it was um, sort of loosely about Trump, but also other other candidates. So um, just a quick follow up, and then I want to get to advice for students in Q and A. Um, Trump isn't the only candidate to sort of take issue not take issue with news judgment, but to be uh, to deal with that that issue. Um, so many of the the seventeen original um, candidates for the Republican nomination, as well as Bernie Sanders, have, have made quite a few statements about being ignored, um, being underplayed, undercovered, um, and that their poll numbers look the way they do um, because they're being undercovered. And then, you know, the flip side of that is, you know, that they're being covered uh, appropriately for, for where they are in the race. So obviously, um, candidates who, who in the Republican field who were way down in the polls um, weren't getting as much coverage as uh, coverage as the candidates, you know, higher in the polls, and it's a bit of a, a of a chicken and egg dilemma, right? Because coverage can help poll numbers and, and exposure, but journalists, I think, and news organizations have to make choices about which candidates to cover more, and front runners do tend to get more coverage. Do you think that's um, uh, fair? That you know that that um, or I guess what's the right approach for for political reporters to play so that candidates are covered fairly, but also in a way that reflects the the popularity of their campaigns among the public. I'll just jump in quickly to say I actually don't buy the argument that news organizations have held back candidates in this cycle. Right. I mean, it, Sanders is a perfect example of that. He just won what his seventeenth primary. Right. He's he's outraised Hillary Clinton every month this year until this last month. I mean, there there has there is an incredible array of choices of wording information, and the Post has done exhaustive coverage of almost all these candidates. Right. In fact, we put some of the like least likely candidates to succeed on the front page multiple days in a row. So I do I feel like that aspect of our democracy is working is that people are responding to the candidates who have a message they connect with, right Abby? Yeah, and I also think that um, it, the way that the internet works is is funny in the sense that you can seek out the information that you want to see or you can see what is the dominant storyline, so what most people are reading or talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think both things can be pretty misleading. They don't give you a good picture of um, what is actually being written about you know, the world of politics. So I think people just need to be aware of that, that just because you're seeing a lot of stories about Marco Rubio. Right. doesn't mean that, that those are the only stories that are being written. It might just mean that those are the stories that people in your circle are reading. Um, and, and I think that that's frustrating for us because we do get accused all the time of kind of putting one person up or putting one person down. I mean, I often um, will get readers who say, you know, why did you put... Um, why did you put this Hillary Clinton story near the top of the page and then the story that has Bernie Sanders' name in it is, right. is in the middle of the page on the website? And, you know, I mean, sometimes there is a reason for that because there is news judgment that goes into where things are placed on the website, but um, it's not an attempt 
to suppress a candidate. It's uh, probably more a reflection of um, the either the organic interest in our website on a, a certain topic, or um, or a reflection of the actual importance of a story. Um, so it's not like you know the journalism or you know gods or sitting there saying we really don't want to talk about we don't want to talk about Bernie Sanders right now right. we don't want to talk about you know John Kasich right now um, it, it it can be driven by a lot of other factors and much of it especially these days on the internet right. is driven by traffic it's driven by what people are actually reading and what people are actually interested in right and so just just to just to drill drive that home for students I mean the the what we were talking about are assertions by campaigns about coverage and obviously it's very popular to to blame the media, you know, uh, which is such a vague entity. Um, but that's very pop it's popular with the debates. It gets applause at debates. Um, and it is something that people love to do, as you both see in your social media feeds. And when a candidate does that, it is it can be an effective strategy. But I think it's important for students with, with political coverage and with all news coverage, when people make assertions about coverage, uh, an issue or a person being ignored, to test that and actually go and look at coverage and make sure before you, you, you assume that. Um, um, Can I make one? Sure. Because right, you just reminded me. I also think that, um, you know, I mean, we don't, as as journalists, abdicate our responsibility to have judgment about right. what is important and what is not. And, um, you know, I think a good example is when we're talking about the nominating process um, for both parties, and we talk about who actually has a chance based on the process based on the math to win this thing. Um, and just because a candidate says they have a chance doesn't mean that they actually do. Right. And it's our job to say so. Right. And right. Um, that might make people unhappy, but we can't, um, I, I think we, we're not, just because a candidate says something doesn't make it true. And as journalists, it's our responsibility to say that and to make judgment calls about what we cover and how much credence we give it on our platforms um, based on our news judgment and based on facts um, and, and uh, not based on what people's preferences are and what their hopes and dreams are. Right. So so many of the students watching, um, some of the students watching I should say are, are students of the News Literacy Project and working on our units and might be interested in Letters to the Next President, but many of the students are, are um, involved with Letters to the Next President, which is an initiative uh, um, that uh, in which they identify issues that matter to them and they create something about them, whether they write a blog post or they create a short multimedia piece or broadcast piece about that. So as um, journalists who, who research issues and topics all the time, um, what advice do you have for, for students who are trying to identify and research issues that matter to them, that have an impact on them, that maybe they feel need more uh, attention? Um, if you have quick tips, well, I, I mean, one thing I think we've seen in this news environment is that um, a poignantly described personal story can make a connection with a candidate, and they actually seek those out. And so, you know, one is to write or research something from your heart that really matters to you. You know, get some facts about it, but tell a story in a compelling way. And I mean, there is an incredible ability now to communicate with you know, top elected officials and candidates through social media and Facebook and Twitter in a way that there never was before. So you actually have a much greater chance of having your voice heard by some of these people than you had in the past, which is pretty incredible if you think about it. Yeah, and, and to that point, um, you can really communicate directly with candidates. 
and their campaigns online in a lot of different ways. Um, many of the candidates this year have done Facebook chats, Reddit chats, Twitter chats, Snapchat, Snapchats, <laughs> or uh, uh, you name it. I mean, the 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 opportunities are really kind of endless at this point. And I've also seen um, I've seen just sort of average constituents, high school students, get candidates to come to their hometowns um, by launching social media campaigns, starting a hashtag, mm -hmm. um, tweeting it repeatedly, building a following. Um, that works. I've seen it work. Yeah. And, um, and it, you know, I mean, it, sometimes it's about sharing a personal story, but sometimes it's also about demonstrating knowledge of a subject matter and a need. Mm -hmm. um, and connecting that with the, the interests of a particular candidate. And I think it, you know, it, it works. Yeah. And I mean, what's amazing, too, is I feel like um, what really connects in this environment, what tends to go viral, is things that clearly um, speak from the heart and are authentic. And authenticity is in really short supply in politics. Yeah. So the more you give a politician the opportunity to connect with an authentic story, the, more, the better chance you have that they're going to glom onto that. Great. Um, we do have a question um, from Twitter, and we welcome other questions here as we as we round out the hour. Um, so we have a question about how do we talk to, or what what advice would you have for people to talk to and teach young people about uh, this the so-called new you know truth-free time in politics without making them cynical. So in an era when people many you know, citizens have this sort of attitude like you have your truth, I have mine, I don't trust anything but this source and that source and often those are highly partisan sources of information. Um, what tips do you have for, for talking to or working with young people um, to confront that reality but not make them cynical about the process or about the existence of, of credible information? I'll just say personally what has heartened me and kept me from getting too cynical um, and it has a direct connection to the News Literacy Project which is uh, several years ago when I was starting to feel sort of like the currency of what we were doing was being devalued. I started working with the News Literacy Project going into schools and talking to students about how to identify the information that is credible out there and just those like very concrete personal interactions with a group of 14 year olds that changed their perspective on how to look for information mm -hmm. heartened me. It made me feel like, all right, even if it's just in groups of five or 10 or 20, if I can really kind of communicate to people the value of what we do in journalism, I feel like if enough people do that, we will start actually <laughs> creating a little bit of a, a change in our culture of how we move, uh, view information. So. For students, I think that is a kind of battle you can wage every day in your lives, and that's something that I encourage students to do. Is that you know your friend shows you a text, sends you a text, and asks you to share it, and it's about a rumor going on in the school. Think twice about doing it. I mean, you've like taken a stand at that moment for truth. And I'll just say quickly, uh, it's important to just point out when people are confronted with the truth, right? So it isn't. I I would disagree that we're in a truth-free era. Um, because people are being confronted with it, and I think that um, if you have an opportunity to show that, um, it has happened in debates, it has happened in town halls, it has happened online, at, at press conferences, through fact checks, mm -hmm. people are confronted with things that are not true. And there are concrete times when it has changed their behavior. It's important to remember that those yeah. times 
have happened. They matter. They've made a big difference in this campaign, and they will continue on. Right, and I think I think for all the challenges that can drive cynicism, all the challenges about our new you know information ecosystem that's changing constantly, and for all the avenues for misinformation uh, that are out there, there are a lot of opportunities and a lot of powerful ways to document what people have said and and to go back to the record and and actually establish um, truth in a particular context. Um, and also I think for people working with young people, uh, the platform I mentioned earlier, the, the Checkology e-learning platform that the News Literacy Project dot, uh, uh, just launched, which is at checkology.org, um, is a great resource and you can actually pilot that um, at no cost right now. And if you're interested, teachers, just tweet at me or um, visit our site and um, you can get more information there. So I think we are out of time exactly uh, on my clock. Um, let's see. Oh, though. So Liana's saying that we can we can stay on here um, uh, for a little bit uh, here, and uh, let me just just remind viewers of a, a couple of things to close out. Um, so we really want to thank thank um, Matea and Abby both, um, obviously for a great conversation, uh, and we are going to wrap up this first webinar for for the month of May. Uh, and this series on building news literacy, we're going to have a second um, session later in the month. Um, but please feel free to ke keep the conversation going on Twitter using the hashtags ConnectedLearning and 2NextPrez. Uh, and you can feel free to tweet at Abby, tweet at Matea, tweet at me. Um, and there will also be a full video recording of this session available um, immediately following the session on ConnectedLearning.tv um, with other curated content on the way. Um, and if you found this con uh, conversation helpful, please share it with your networks. And if you'd like to know more about um, upcoming webinars from Connected Learning TV, which is now produced by the National Writing Project's Educator Innovator, um, please visit uh, educatorinnovator.org and sign up for the email newsletter. So I'd like to just thank everyone um, again for joining us uh, here on the Hangout um, and thank both Matea and Abby for joining me as well and taking time in what I know is a very busy time for you both. No problem. Great Thank to be with you. you. Thank you. Okay.